0: So a friend of mine was uh, speaking at a gathering of missionaries uh, this many years ago, and, and one of them came up to talk to him. He was a church planner, and he said, "I'm a red letter church planner." My friend asked him, "What does that mean?" He'd never heard of a red letter church planner. He said, "I'm planting churches by only reading the words in red. You know, the words that Jesus actually said while he was here on earth." He felt like that would be a much more spiritual way to go about it, rather than getting all distracted by all that other stuff in the epistles, you know, that people argue about. And he just wanted to get away from all that and and really focus on what Jesus said. My friend thought about it for a minute and then replied, you know, Jesus only mentions the church twice in the Gospels. Most of what Jesus wanted to say about the church, he actually inspired his apostles to say in the book of Acts and the epistles. All those words that you're determined to ignore. And so my friend said to this red-letter church planner, what you're doing doesn't sound spiritual. It sounds satanic. And the conversation went downhill from there. (laughs) But I think my friend was right. Ignoring what Jesus says, whether it's in red or not, is a satanic strategy, not a spiritual one. But it raises the question of... That was driving this particular church planner. And it's this question of devotion to Jesus. I mean, this church planner was intending to be devoted to Jesus. That's why I was paying attention to the red letter words. Does our devotion to Jesus make us spiritual? I said last week that it's not what we give up, but who we give ourselves to that marks us as spiritual well, does that mean that so long as our intentions are good and our focus is on Christ, we're spiritual? Is is spirituality fundamentally subjective? You know, there are lots of people who sincerely believe they are spiritual here in Portland. And they have all sorts of reasons for thinking that, but could it be that they are sincerely wrong about their spirituality? We're continuing our study in 1 Corinthians this morning, which we've entitled United We Stand. As a church, there's no doubt we are united in our devotion to Jesus. What does it mean to be devoted? Well, the dictionaries would say to be devoted is to be ardently loyal and committed. And in the context of religion, the dictionaries would emphasize the the strength of religious feeling ardor, strength of feeling, all of that's really subjective. And if devotion is fundamentally subjective, is it even possible to be devoted in the wrong way? If it's ultimately subjective, can I be wrongly devoted? How, how do you know that your devotion to Jesus is a devotion that Jesus approves? Turn with me, if you would, to First Corinthians chapter seven. First Corinthians chapter seven. We started this chapter last week. We're going to pick it up in verse 25, the second half of the chapter this week. This is found on page 1015. 1015, if you're using one of the Bibles that we've provided here, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to look at verse 25 down to the end of the chapter, verse 40. And as you're turning there, let me just remind you we've gotten to this part of the book where Paul is no longer responding to what's been reported to him. He's now responding to what the Corinthians have written him about. And the first issue that we saw last week is whether or not it's more spiritual to just give up sex and probably marriage altogether. And as we saw last week, Paul's answer was no. No. It's not your sex life and it's not your marriage that makes you spiritual. It's contented obedience, whatever station of life you happen to be in, that marks you as spiritual. But we noted last week, because he mentions it, but he didn't really get into it, Paul does think that being single is better. So. It doesn't make you spiritual, but it's, it's better to be single than married, says Paul. And, and he's going to explain why in the second half of the chapter, what we're going to look at now. It's, it's better because it's easier to be devoted to the Lord. This is, this is kind of a big part of Paul's argument in the second half of chapter 7. It's better to be single because it's easier to be devoted to the Lord. But here's the thing, singleness is not Paul's point in this chapter, not even the second half of the chapter. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 35. Verse 35, "'I am saying this for your own benefit, not to put a restraint on you, but to promote what is proper, and so that you may be devoted to the Lord without distraction.'" It turns out that devotion is not self-justifying. It's just as bad to be devoted to the right thing in the wrong way as it is to be devoted to the wrong thing. Paul's point in bringing this idea of what is proper and devotion, Paul's point to both single and married is this. We'll put it on the screen. Be devoted to the Lord, but do it properly. Be devoted to the Lord, but do it properly. We're going to look at this in two steps. So first, be devoted to the Lord. Let's, let's, uh, let's read this section. We'll pick it up in verse 25. First Corinthians chapter 7, verse 25. Now about virgins, I have no command from the Lord. But I do give an opinion as one who by the Lord's mercy is faithful. Because of the present distress, I think it is good for a man to to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. However, if you do get married, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But such people will have trouble in this life, and I am trying to spare you. This is what I mean, brothers and sisters. The time is limited. So from now on, those who have wives should be as though they had none. And those who weep as though they did not weep. And those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. And those who buy as though though they didn't own anything. And those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. For this world in its current form is passing away. I want you to be without concerns. The unmarried man is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But the married man is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. And his interests are divided. The unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, so that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. But the married woman is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. I am saying this for your own benefit, not to put a restraint on you, but to promote what is proper and so that you may be devoted to the Lord without distraction. All right, as I said last week, being spiritual, according to Paul, is not about what you give up. It's about who you give yourself to. And that means being devoted to the Lord with your whole life. As Paul says there at one point, body and soul. Now, this is where singleness comes in for Paul. Paul is, earlier in the chapter, as we know, he's already talked to the married and he's talked to the divorced. Now he turns to talk to the singles, but not not just to the currently unmarried. Really, what he's focusing on is virgins, which would have been a word that they would use to describe the never married. And he says he has no command from the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean that... That this isn't authoritative, what he's about to say. We saw this before, back in verse 10. It just means he's not quoting the Lord. He's not referring to red letters, you know, back in the gospel tradition. Rather, he says he's speaking as an apostle, verse 25, one who has been faithful with the message to which he's been entrusted. And what he says to the never married is it's good to stay as you are. If you've never married, That's that's good. That's that's actually better in his view. So, so stay single. And and then he explains why there in verse 26. It's, It's because of the present distress. What distress is he talking about? Well, I don't think he's talking about any particular distress that they're suffering there in Corinth. I think this is a reference to the last days. Like Paul... We live between the first coming of Jesus Christ and His second coming. And according to the New Testament, all the days between the first coming and the second coming are the last days. And they are characterized by the distress of preparing for Christ's return, preparing for final judgment. Why is it distressful? Well, it's distressful because it could come at any time. Like, there's, there's not going to be a whole lot of extra warning at this point. Now, I know it's been 2,000 years, but Paul says there in verse 29, the time is limited. What does he mean by that? Well, what he means by that is that, look, there is nothing left for God to do before judgment day comes. Christ has come. He's announced salvation. Jesus Christ lived a life that was perfectly pleasing to the Lord and and then he died on the cross as a substitute and a sacrifice for sinners so that they could be saved from God's judgment. And to prove that it's all true, he got up from the dead and now he has ascended to heaven and he sits at the right hand of God where he currently lives reigns and rules over all things. There's only one thing left to happen in God's cosmic plan for the universe, and that's for Jesus to come back. Friends, this is the good news of the gospel. The good news that, that salvation has not only been proclaimed, it's been accomplished. But this good news Is also distressing news. Have you ever? I'm sure you haven't, but just, you know, hypothetically, have you ever run a red light and then seen that flash of bright white light behind you? You know what that means. That flash means judgment is coming. Right? Judgment is coming. But but here's the thing. It doesn't come instantaneously. It doesn't come right away. They don't stop you right there in the intersection and hand you the ticket. No, you go home and everything's fine and everything's pleasant. And yet every day you go out to the mail and there's a little bit of dread in your stomach because you know judgment is coming. You just don't know how bad it's going to be. Friends, no matter how pleasant these days seem, the cross of Jesus Christ was that flash of light announcing not only that that, that salvation has been accomplished, but announcing that judgment is coming. Only it's a lot worse than a traffic ticket. Friend, if if you're not a Christian, this is the position that you're in, whether you know it or not. And, and, and the thing is, the, the, the flash of the cross guaranteeing that judgment day is coming, that's not the only kind of flash that's going off in your life. There are all sorts of messages that God is sending you every day trying to get your attention. From, from your own just sort of current dissatisfaction with your life to your conscience which sometimes accuses you and you know your conscience is right. To maybe the suffering that you're experiencing in your life right now because of decisions that you made. But most of all, he is trying to get your attention through the sound of my voice right now. Through the proclamation of this gospel. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is a flash that says, yes, judgment is coming. But friend, it is also a beacon of hope. A a beacon that declares that though this storm of judgment is coming, there is a safe harbor, and it is Jesus Christ. Today is the day, friend, to wake up. To consider the peril that you are in and to turn to Christ for hope, for salvation, for rescue from the judgment that will come. And I'd love to talk to you more about this. Find me afterwards, I'll be sitting right down front. Now, as Christians, we understand that we have nothing to fear about Judgment Day. We, we've seen the beacon of hope that that flash was, and we, we have made for the safe harbor that is Jesus. Christ has paid the penalty of our sins. But, Christian, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be preparing for the last day. The proof of conversion is a converted life. The proof of Spirituality is a spiritual life, a life devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ and following him. And and so, in light of the distress, in light of the need to prepare for that day, Paul looks at everyone, married or single, in verse 27, and he says, stay as you are. Just stay as you are. If you're single, it's better to stay that way. Now, he quickly clarifies himself in verse 28 that, look, okay, you're not sinning if you get married. You see that there in verse 28? However, if you do get married, you've not sinned. But here's the thing. Paul would like to spare you, and particularly he's he's talking to the never married, he would like to spare you trouble in this life. That's what he says. Now, does that mean that Paul is saying, like, marriage is trouble? Okay, I said last week, marriage is hard, and that's true but I don't think that's what Paul is saying here. He's, he's, he's not just saying marriage is trouble, like avoid it, you're better off. No, this, this is not a pragmatic argument that it's just easier to be single. The trouble he has in mind is not the trouble of coordinating careers and cars or early risers versus night owls or how you bring together two different vacation styles. That's not what he's talking about. I should also say, he is not talking about the trouble of abuse. Paul's command to stay as you are is by no means a command for a woman to stay in an abusive marriage. It is by no means a command for a child to continue to submit to abuse physically or sexually abuse someone is to forfeit any right or claim you had on that relationship. And there's nothing in Scripture, and there's nothing in Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 that is telling you, continue to just suck it up and submit to someone who's beating you or someone who is sexually abusing you. Friend, if that's you, you need to get out of that situation. And I want you to know that we're here to help. I would encourage you to reach out to the church. Reach out to the office, to one of the elders, to somebody you trust here in this church, if that is your situation. So the trouble that Paul wants to spare you is is not the normal inconveniences of marriage, nor is he talking about abuse, No, the the trouble Paul has in mind is the trouble that marriage is going to add to your calling to devote your whole life to the Lord. Paul explains this. You you see there uh, in, in verse 29, he says, look, since the time is limited, that is, the time is limited before the Lord calls us home or before he returns, we should live like it. We should, we should live like the time is short. And, and then in verses 29 to 31 there, he works through a series of examples. He, he looks at, at marriage. Those who are married, those you know, who, who have wives, should be as though they had none. But, but then he adds some other examples, like grieving. Those who are grieving as if they're not, and those who are rejoicing, really loving life as if they're not. He, he points to property ownership. If you buy and own stuff, live as if you don't. He, he points to commercial activity, those who use the world. Live as if you're not. Essentially, and all of these are kind of hyperbolic examples. Essentially, what he's saying here is look, the time is short. So, these things marriage, joy, grieving, work, and commercial activity, these things might describe you. They ought not define you. These are things that you do. They're not who you are. And you should live like it. Paul's call to live as though not is not an excuse to neglect your marriage. It's not an excuse to neglect your responsibilities at work. No, rather, Paul is calling us to all of us, single and married, to live in such a way that none of those things, and all the things he mentions are actually good things, none of those things are ultimate things. Because when a good thing becomes an ultimate thing, it becomes a different thing altogether. It becomes an idol. And we are to devote our lives to the Lord and not to idols. This is why Paul says, being single is better. He wants people to be free from all the potentially like, good things, but ultimately things of this world, things of this age, that, that, that might distract us from devoting our lives to the Lord. This is what he says there in verse 32 right? He, uh, he says, uh, let, me, ooh, let me get to the right place. Verse 32, I want you to be without concerns. That, that word concerns, it's actually the word for anxiety, only he's giving it like a positive spin, right? He, he knows that the single person who's content in their singleness able to control their sexual desires, not act out on them wrongly, well, they'll, they'll be able to be single-minded in their, their anxiety, their, their desire to please the Lord. On the other hand, he says, look, married men and women, like they've, they've made a commitment to each other, and so their interests, and therefore their anxieties, who they're going to please and how they're going to order their life— It's inevitably divided. Verse 33, the married man is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife, and his interests are divided. Now, I don't think he means sinfully divided. I don't think he's talking about being double-minded and divided the way James talks about it in James chapter 1. No, I, I, I think what he's saying is, look, if you're married... And you're trying to think about how am I going to devote my life to the Lord, you don't get to just make that decision. You're going to have to take into account your spouse, their desires and needs, their strengths and weaknesses, their particular infirmities. I um, I once knew a fellow who was preparing to go into ministry, very gifted young man. Uh, It was a joy to get to know him and to work with him. And he was one of these guys that was just fearless. He, he would just like walk into prisons in the Philippines as a white guy and start Bible studies and, and, and kind of make things happen. And he had done this over and over and over again all over the world. And, and this, this was kind of his vision for his life, for his ministry, is how he wanted to devote uh, his, his life to the Lord, going to really hard places with the gospel. And then he met this girl and she's a wonderful girl. She really loved Jesus and wanted to follow Jesus and wanted to follow Jesus with this guy only she was not the kind of girl who was going to walk into really hard places. That is not the way the Lord had wired her. She she was more wired to be somewhere in the suburbs, which I know has its own dangers, but it didn't quite compare to the dangers that my friend was interested in. Well, they got married. And guess where they are? They're in the suburbs. It's not a sin. It's not a bad thing. They are doing fantastic ministry where they are. But marrying this woman reshaped what it looked like being devoted to the Lord was going to be for him. I've experienced this. Uh, not, Not Almost, almost 20 years ago, I was invited to be the pastor of a church overseas. And Adrian and I went to, to visit that church, and I loved it, and I really wanted to do it. And I turned to my wife, and I could tell she was not thinking the same thing. We talked about it, and I want to be really clear. She said to me, if you're convinced this is where the Lord is calling you, I will follow you. I will go with you. But if you're asking me, where do I think I'm gonna thrive and our family's gonna thrive, I don't think it's there. Well, where am I? I'm here. <laughs> and actually, in the Lord's good providence, had I gone to that church overseas, I probably never would have been here. So I'm I'm so thankful for the way the Lord has worked in that situation to get me right where he wanted me, me to be. But it's still the reality. Devoting my life to the Lord. Was a little more complicated because I was I'm married to Adrian, and so we got to like figure that out together. For those of you, particularly men in this congregation, I know there are many of you who are single, and you're aspiring to ministry. You're aspiring to serve as an elder. Or you're aspiring to vocational ministry. I tell you those stories so that you will think carefully and choose wisely. It's been said, and it's true, that who you marry will either double your ministry or cut it in half. And I have certainly experienced that. Adrian has not just doubled my ministry, it's like a hundredfold. She has expanded it. But that's not really my point here. And that's not Paul's point. Paul's point is that no matter who you marry, that person will determine the shape of your future ministry. So think carefully. For all of you who are single, men and women, and regardless of whether you're going into ministry, vocational ministry or not, understand that who you marry will shape what your devotion to Christ looks like. Marriage won't prevent your devotion to Christ, but it will determine some of the boundaries, some of the limits, and the particular shape of that devotion. And so, Paul says, look, it's just easier being single. You're not going to have to take all that into account. But single brothers and sisters, note what Paul is not saying. And for those of us that are married, we need to be really aware of this. Paul is not saying that you won't feel lonely. Paul is not saying that you'll never feel left out. He's not saying that you won't miss having just someone to do something with or someone who can help you make a decision. He's not saying that it won't be difficult. He's saying it will be easier to devote your life to Christ. It will be easier to be spiritual in the ways you feel like the Lord is calling you to be spiritual because it will be easier to make those decisions yourself about how you're going to shape your life around following Jesus. Now, that means something, I think, for us, particularly who are married. We should be doing all we can to ameliorate, to lessen the things that are hard about being single for the single brothers and sisters in our church. We should be actively pulling single people into our families. We we should be alert to to the real difficulties that the contented single person faces which is not primarily the lack of a spouse but the lack of just someone to help them get things done someone to like make decisions with it's hard to have to do everything alone contented singleness as i said last week is not a problem to be fixed it's certainly not a stigma to be ashamed of. It is certainly not a threat to be guarded against. But that doesn't mean it's easy. And, and we should be deeply engaged with addressing those things about singleness that are hard, but don't necessarily have to be if you're in a family. The gift of singleness actually should be, I think, celebrated in our church. Even, dare I say, encouraged. And let let me say again to the, the single here even if you don't have the gift of singleness, you just are single at this time. Your singleness is something to be made the most of. And I am so encouraged at how much I see that in the the single people of our church. From from Christian Wahlberg and all of his efforts to encourage our supported workers, to, to, to Carol Woods and her faithful discipling of younger women, to Lisa Yarborough's efforts at hospitality towards both the single and the married, Tyler Rosette's discipling of some of our young single men in the youth group, to, 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 to the Valley View women, you know who you are, who are trying to use their house together for evangelism. I don't really have time to list all of the single people in this church and all of the things that they are doing. I am so encouraged by it. I'm challenged, and I'm speaking to you, single men and women, I am challenged by your example, and I am encouraged by by the pace that you're setting for our church, because in many ways, you guys are like the pace car or that, that pace runner setting the pace for us, and keep at it. Like, push us. It's good for us. You're a model to all of us. I just don't think we think about singleness well or rightly. And actually, I want to encourage you guys. We have this on our bookstall. We have it in our library. We give it away all the time. I want to encourage as many as possible to read this book by Sam Alberry: Seven Myths About Singleness. It will encourage you. It will challenge you. It will challenge you in your life as a married person. It will encourage you in your life as a single person. It will help all of us here as a church be a better family to one another. So I hope it's only $8 on the bookstall. We've got it in the library. I hope it sells out today and you make us buy more. I think it'd really, really help our church. Now, maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking, why would anyone devote themselves to this kind of God who says, actually, it's just better to be single? But why would anyone devote themselves to the Lord rather than to their own interests and their own needs and their own desires. I want to be really clear with you, because maybe you're thinking this, you're not a Christian, maybe, maybe you're a, a, a young person growing up in one of the families of this church, and you're really trying to think about, why, why should I follow Jesus, especially if he calls me to do something really hard? We don't devote ourselves to the Lord because we're trying to get something from him. We don't devote ourselves to the Lord in order to gain his love or his acceptance. We devote ourselves to the Lord because he's already devoted himself to us. The cross of Jesus Christ is the ultimate expression of devotion of Christ's devotion to God in obedience, willing to do an incredibly hard thing, maybe the hardest thing ever, but also the ultimate expression of his devotion to us in love. If you're wondering why we devote ourselves to this Lord, I just invite you to look at the cross. And I would invite you to devote yourself to him today. Because when you do, you will find that he has already devoted himself to you. Over the next few chapters, Paul's going to keep working out this idea of what does it mean to be spiritual? This is where it begins to be spiritual, is to be characterized by the Spirit of God, to display the the spiritual life that he's created in us through the gospel. And it begins here with being devoted to the Lord who devoted himself to us. It's not what we give up, but who we give ourselves to that marks us as spiritual. But here's the thing and much more briefly, just two points, and the first one was the longest, much more briefly, if we're going to devote ourselves to the Lord, we need to do it properly. We need to do it properly. Look at verse 35 again. I'm saying this for your own benefit, not to put a restraint on you, but to promote what is proper, and so that you may devoted, may be devoted to the Lord without distraction. If any man thinks he's acting improperly toward the virgin he's engaged to, If she's getting beyond the usual age for marriage and he feels he should marry, he can do what he wants. He is not sinning. They can get married. But he who stands firm in his heart, who is under no compulsion, but has control over his own will and has decided in his heart to keep her as his fiance, he will do well. So then he who marries his fiance does well, but he who does not marry will do better. A wife is bound as long as her husband is living, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to anyone she wants, only in the Lord. She's happier if she remains as she is, in my opinion. And I think that I also have the Spirit of God. All right, Paul introduces this idea, the importance of living properly. That means to live in a way that is publicly presentable as worthy of admiration and i think he has that both in view internal to the church that is as the church looks at one another's lives it's 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 proper it's it's worthy of admiration but also with view to the world as the world looks at our lives uh, they would see lives that are worthy of admiration but then he applies this importance of living properly he he applies it specifically to those who are deciding whether or not to get married now we need to remember that the process of getting married back then is not the process that most of us went through or are thinking about going through getting married today. We have a lot of freedom over who we marry, and we tend to marry for, for love. It's, 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 it's a choice that we get to make. But in Paul's context, like much of the world still today, you didn't have any choice in who you got married to. Marriages were arranged. They, they might even be arranged while you were still like a child, and you would, you would actually grow up knowing that, that person across town that you were going to marry. It's kind of weird for our context, but really normal for Paul's context. Well, it's in this context that Paul is concerned that those who are betrothed, those who are in an arranged marriage that has not yet been consummated, it's not yet actually happened, it's just planned, he's concerned that they conduct themselves in a proper manner as they devote themselves to the Lord. And so he says to the man who wants to follow through with his engagement, Paul says, go ahead, right? Verse 36, you're you're, you're free. You can do what you want. If you think it would be improper not to go through with it, and, and maybe especially because she's past the age where she could be betrothed to someone else, well, well then he says, you're, you're not sinning by not getting married don't, or, or by getting married. He said, look, don't, don't let the ascetics shame you. You know, those ones who said, oh, it's, it's better just to not have sex at all. Don't let them shame you into remaining single when actually what you want to do is get married. And, and don't... don't Mistake Paul's advice for for a command that's that's binding your conscience. That that word that he uses back in verse 35, he's not trying to restrain anyone. it's, it's, It's literally, I'm not trying to put a noose around your neck and drag you someplace where you don't want to go. No, you're you're free. On the other hand, he says, for the man who is fully convinced of his desire and ability to remain single, and Paul says it four times. In four different ways there in verse 37, just to make sure we're really clear, you're free to remain single. There's no sin in breaking off the engagement. But he says it four times, firm in his heart, under no compulsion, control over his own will, decided in his heart. He says it four times because it should be a matter of conviction. Otherwise, remaining single is going to result in the kind of improper living that Paul is keen for them to avoid. If you don't have the gift of singleness, don't try to live as if you do. It's probably not going to work. And then he says in verses 39 and 40, look, this is mutual. The teaching is mutual. He, he reiterates that married women should stay married but that category, married women, in his mind, would actually include the betrothed. So you're actually married or you're betrothed to be married. Stay in that category. The, the, the whole category that we have of unengaged young adult women basically didn't exist in his day. But he says, look, if you find yourself single because your husband died or the man you are betrothed to dies you got a choice, and it's the same choice that the man has. You're free to remarry so long as he's a believer. You see that there at the end of verse 39, only in the Lord. So, this is what pursuing marriage properly looks like. There are amazingly few restrictions placed on marriage in the New Testament. This is one of them. Believers are only allowed to pursue marriage with other believers. To do otherwise is to disobey the Lord. It is to sin against Christ. But, he says, you'll be happier if you don't. Verse 40, she is happier if she remains as she is. Now, again, the logic is not pragmatic. He's not saying, oh, I'm just really down on marriage, so you'll be happier if you're not married. And it's not a moral argument. He's not agreeing with the ascetics that it's morally superior to be single. It's a pastoral argument. You will be happier because it will be easier for you to devote your life to Christ. And with an eye on those ascetics who are claiming to be more spiritual, he reminds them, I think I also have the Spirit. Paul thinks it's better to be single, but not at the cost of an improper life. What does that mean for single people here? It means if you don't have the gift of singleness, and really only you can determine that, as you examine your own heart and life and your ability to be content and to control your own sexual desires and live in the boundaries that Christ has given us for singleness. If you don't have the gift of singleness, you should do all that is within your power to get married to a fellow believer. That's what this means. You should do all that is within your power to get married to a fellow believer. I get it. Not everything is within your power. There's another person involved. Nevertheless, what can you do? Well, I talked about this some last week. going to press in a little more. You can start, as I said, by divorcing your checklist. I know you because I was the same. I had a list of qualities and characteristics that I was looking for in the person that I wanted to marry. And some of them were really good, and some of them were fine, but not necessarily godly. You need to divorce your list. Something else you need to do. And I say this to you as single people, because I remember this myself. You need to consider whether or not maybe you're overestimating yourself. Now, I'm going to tread gently here so I'm going to uh, use a story from somebody else's life. I, I have a good friend. <laughs> no, this is, really I, this is really true. This is really true. This is a story about somebody else. Uh, and I'm going I'm to let you fact check me because I'm going I'm to tell you how you can double check this. Uh, but I have a friend uh, who, uh, as an elder, did lots of counseling for, with young people. And uh, he was counseling a young man who was having a really hard time committing to marrying the girl he'd been dating. Uh, As they talked about it, all sorts of things came out. And, you know, it came out that uh, she was attractive, Uh, she was godly, she had really almost all of the characteristics that he was looking for on his list, but, you know, sometimes conversation kind of dragged, and he was hoping for somebody that would never let the conversation drag but really, what it came down to was there's, there's, there was this one thing about her physical appearance that he just he didn't really like. And as as my friend pressed him on it, he the, the the young man finally confessed, "No, I know she's godly, and there's so much that I'm attracted to, to about her. But I was really holding out for a 10. Now I applaud the honesty, but my friend counseling friend at that moment, this elder. At that point, he gently loses it. <laughs> and he says to the young man, you're holding out for a 10? Brother, look at yourself. I mean, and this is literally what he says. He says, you're, you're, you're like a, a six. Even if you found that woman who was a 10, with all of these uh, qualities, why would she marry you? (laughs) I am not venturing to put a number on your attractiveness. I am suggesting that if you're single and you don't have the gift of singleness, you need to divorce your list and you need to reevaluate yourself. Because if what Paul is saying, oh, I told you, you could fact check. You can go and look this up. He wrote an article on it, and it's called, Brother, You're Like a Six. I, I checked. It's still out there on the internet, two different places. You can find it. It's true. All right. But here's the thing. If what Paul is saying is true, and it is, about people who are single who don't have the gift of singleness. You will be better off learning to love and serve a brother or sister that meets some of your checklist, rather than remaining single because you never meet that girl or guy that meets all of your checklist. Now maybe you're saying to yourself, but I don't want to settle. Well, I get that. Fair enough. Fair enough if what you mean by that is I don't want to settle for someone who's not a Christian. Yeah, you can't do that. You can't settle for someone who's not a Christian. Or, or maybe you mean by that, I don't want to settle for someone who I can tell really doesn't love me. They're just sort of desperate. Okay, I get that. Or or maybe you're thinking, I don't want to settle for someone I actually don't really like. They kind of grate me all the time. Yeah, that's not going to be a recipe for a good marriage. I get that. I am not instructing you to settle for any of those things. But if what you're saying is, I don't want to settle the way a consumer says, I don't want to settle for a lower-grade model. I, I will only have the best. Because you're thinking like a consumer. Thinking about this solely in terms of what you want and what you need. And brothers and sisters, you've, you've missed the point. You've missed Paul's point. What you need if you don't have the gift of singleness is to be married to a believer who will help you follow Jesus, who will, in their admittedly imperfect ways, prod you in your devotion to Christ. You need to be married to that kind of believer, not the one and only believer out there who meets all your desires in your checklist. If you don't think that person exists, okay, that one and only, they don't exist. If they did, they wouldn't marry you. But if you're having trouble sorting through this, please come talk to one of the elders. Talk to your small group leader. Talk to an older married person that you trust to help you sort through these things in your own mind so that you can actually make some progress. But some of you do have the gift of singleness. Some of you are able to control your sexual desires, and you know a measure, at least, of contentment as a single man or single woman. Now, you may wish you did not have this gift of singleness. You might not like the gift but you know you have it. Or at least that you're called to it. It may be that you're here and and you're you're a believer and you find yourself experiencing unwanted same-sex attraction and so you know that you're not going to be able to marry the way you'd like to. And so you find yourself called to singleness. Brother or sister, It's not just okay that you're single. Paul says it's better. It's actually better. And so I want to encourage you, make the most of it. Trust the Lord who died for you, that he's given you the gift that you have. He's called you to the life that he's called you. And make the most of what he's given you. Use it in undistracted devotion to Christ. Now, that doesn't mean you have to pretend to be Superman or Superwoman with no needs. Let friends know when it's hard and how it's hard. Being single doesn't mean that you have to, you know, be able to be joyful alone all the time. Pull people into your life and let them know, hey, I need somebody to do this with or I need somebody to be part of this decision-making process with me because I can't do it all alone all the time. But make the most of the gift that God's given you, the calling he's placed on your life. And if I may, as a point of personal privilege, to those of you single men and women in this church, and I know who you are, and you know who you are, who have this gift, who have this calling, and are trying to live it out faithfully, let me say thank you on behalf of the whole church. Thank you for giving us a picture of Christ's life in your life. Thank you for showing us how, In heaven, where there's going to be no marriage, there can still be joy because we see it in your life. There can still be companionship because we experience it from you. There can still even be intimate friendship. You really are a gift to this congregation in your contented singleness. Brothers and sisters, there's a proper way to be spiritual. It looks like being devoted to Jesus in our singleness, in our marriages. It looks like making the most of the time that we have in whatever station of life that we're in for as long as we're in that station. It looks like living within the boundaries that Jesus has set for our singleness our marriages for our divorces for our widowhood so let's reject that silly notion that those ascetics were suggesting to the Corinthians that this status or that status is more spiritual than another let's help each other as we remove distractions as we ease burdens so that we all together can devote our lives fully to the Lord. Henson, you show me what this looks like week in and week out, both in your marriages and in your singleness. I could not be more encouraged than in devoting my own life to the Lord with you. Would you pray with me? Take a moment and think about that that thing that is getting in the way of devoting your life to the Lord properly and confess that to Him. Lord, we pray that we would see you clearly as one worthy of the devotion of our whole life. We pray that you would give us the grace and the contentment to not buck against and push against the specific calling that you've placed on our life, the, the specific boundaries that you've drawn around us because of the station of life we're in, but instead that we would be able to give ourselves freely, fully, joyfully to you, trusting you and your call on our lives. And, and may the world see in our lives individually and in our life together corporately as a church that indeed you are worthy of devoting our all to. And we ask this in Christ's name, amen. We devote ourselves to the Lord because he has already devoted himself to us. And now, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all now and forevermore. Amen. Go in peace.